2 Samuel chapter 1, 2 Samuel chapter 1. As we start this new book of the Bible, um, one of the things we need to understand is that originally it was not a new book. Um, First and Second Samuel were originally one book. They were written by the same author, um, same composer, whoever put it together. Um, so both books have a a, a unity in their, in their purpose. They're both of them written to show us how Israel goes from the spiritual and moral decay uh, of the time of the judges to the glory of the monarchy under David, uh, the man who is after God's heart. Um, because of this, you know, it's interesting when we, we go through the scriptures, you've got the, you know, the law, all the first five books of Moses. So it takes us from creation to, you know, Israel going into the prom, about on the edge to go to the promised land. Then you, you know, move into Joshua and then we get, you know, Israel conquering the promised land and then, you know, allotting the, the various, uh, sections of the promised land to the tribes. And then you get to the book of Judges, and it all starts going downhill, right? You know, and they go through these cycles of, of disobedience, repentance, you know, disobedience, judgment, repentance, and, and deliverance. And they just go through these cycles. But then you have, you know, in this thing where things just keep getting worse and worse in, in, in Israel, in Judges, you have this beautiful ray of hope in the book of Ruth, Right? You know, you have this example that not everything was awful and ungodly and wicked and everybody doing you know, whatever they, they think is right. Um, you have a, a, the book of Ruth where you see two individuals, Ruth and, and Boaz, who, who are godly people and who are trying to be obedient to the Lord. And so when we come to 1 Samuel, it's almost a, a question of, well, which one of those two is going to win, you know? Is it going to be the, the attitude of the judges, you know, or is it going to be the attitude we see in Ruth? And so in, in that sense, 1 Samuel is, is actually more of a continuation of Ruth rather than a continuation of Judges because just as Ruth and Boaz were people after God's heart, so too are David and Samuel, right? You know? and, and the mindset of the Judges is still present in men like Eli and Saul, but in the end, it's those whose hearts are after the Lord that prevail, right? That's where we end the book of 1 Samuel. And so... Where we've come from in 1 Samuel is our theme was lessons from the heart because we were looking at many hearts, learning from them what kind of heart pleases or displeases the Lord. So where we're going now in 2 Samuel is with David turning from his bitterness, turning from his own ways, repenting and coming back to the Lord at the end of 1 Samuel, and then Saul's persistent stubbornness leading to his death, closing out 1 Samuel. Second Samuel means the only one left now is David. And so Second Samuel is going to focus entirely upon David, the one whose heart is after the Lord. And so while Second Samuel will still teach us lessons from David's heart, lessons from the heart, Paul's first recorded sermon in Scripture shows us that the theme of 2 Samuel has a slightly different focus, which is why the Septuagint writers eventually divided it into two books. So before we begin 2 Samuel, if we just turn briefly back to Acts, I want to highlight a couple things that Paul says because we're going to take our cue from Scripture about how we're going to approach this book of 2 Samuel. In Acts chapter 13, we read a portion of it in our Scripture reading, In Paul's first sermon, he preaches 
In verse 14, it mentions when they traveled from, you know, the, they had, this is their first missionary trip, and when they traveled to this area uh, where it mentions there of Antioch in Pisidia, they go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, they sit down, they're just going to, you know, participate in the synagogue service. So after they go through the normal routine of the synagogue service, Paul is somebody who's well-known as a rabbi, and, and so the president of the synagogue, he sees them, and he, and he knows there's visitors there. Barnabas is there too, and John Mark's probably still with them at this point. And he says, hey, if you have any word, verse 15, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, stay on. If you'd like to come up and share with us, we'd love to hear from you. And Paul's thinking, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. And so Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, men of Israel and you that fear God, give audience. Listen, I do have something to say. I do have a word of exhortation to share with you. The God of this people of Israel, verse 17, chose our fathers, exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers, foreigners in the land of Egypt. And with a high arm, which means, you know, with a, with a strong right hand, he brought them out. We know through the plagues and everything, through great deliverance, God brought them out of Egypt. Verse 18, and about the time of 40 years, he suffered their manners in the wilderness. He brought them out of Egypt and he put up with their nonsense for 40 years. But then, verse 19, when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, when they dispossessed the Canaanites, he divided their land to them by lot, all the 12 tribes. So he's giving them a history of Israel, much like I did just a few minutes ago. And when he had done that, verse 20, after that, he gave unto them judges for about a space of 450 years, a huge chunk of their history, until something changed, Samuel the prophet. And after Samuel, the last judge, it says they desired a king. So God gave unto them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, and he was their king for about 40 years, Paul says. But here's the, where everything changes, verse 22. And when he, God, had removed him, Saul, he, God, raised up unto them David to be their king. This is the point we're at right now. God removes Saul he dies in the battle against the Philistines in Mount Gilboa, and he's going to raise David up to be a king. And then here's where we're in this section of history. We're in 2 Samuel right now, and Paul's referencing that, and he says, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? Well, one translator said this means, for he is a man as my heart desires him to be. That's interesting. In other words, David was a man as God's heart desires man to be, all of us to be. Now, the word after, it means down from or down into or all throughout. So David was a man who was after God's heart. There was a, a down from, a down into, throughout. Something about God's heart had to do with that preposition. And what was God's heart? Well, Paul explains, which shall fulfill all my will. God's heart refers to what God wants. David was a man who dove into God's heart and allowed God's heart to influence his heart. And as a result, 
David was a man who understood what the Lord wanted. Do you get that? That's what it means to be a man after God's own heart. He dove into God's heart and allowed God's heart to influence his heart, and as a result, David was a man who understood what the Lord wanted. That's what it means to be a man after God's own heart. Now, of course, some of you are probably sitting there thinking like I did as I was, you know, studying this. How do you reconcile that with David's sins and failures? Like, I mean, if David was someone who dove into God's heart and let God's heart, you know, work on his heart to a place where David was one of those few people who really got God. He really understood what God wanted. If that's the case, then how do you murder your best friend because you slept with his wife and got her pregnant and and all these other, like, how do we reconcile that with David's sins and failures? Well, that's part of what 2 Samuel is going to teach us. You see, David didn't always do what the Lord wanted, even though he knew what God wanted. In fact, David missed God's heart many times. But here's the difference we'll see as we go through 2 Samuel. Unlike Saul, David did not create a pretend world out of his own heart. He didn't create a pretend world that ignored what God wanted. And so when David was confronted with his failures, he did not stubbornly bang his head against his own will. He repented and once again dove into God's heart and then began to follow the Lord again. And so when we want to understand what it means to be a man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart, we understand it doesn't mean perfection. You see, God knows our frame that we're simply dust, right? He knows we will fail. And the scripture says that he pities us like a father pities his children. But his heart when we fail, what God wants when we fail, is that we repent and return to his ways, what he wants. And so that's the theme of 2 Samuel, to have a heart that even when we fail, returns to the Lord and to his ways. And so as we take a deeper look at David's heart throughout the book of 2 Samuel, we're going to study what that looks like, what that means, both in times of closeness with the Lord and in times where we disobey the Lord. So with that in mind, let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 1 as we begin this new journey, a man after God's own heart. Verse 1, 2 Samuel, now it came to pass after the death of Saul When David was returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had abode two days in Ziklag, it came even to pass on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and earth upon his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and he did obeisance. David and his men returned to Ziklag, the place that had been their home for about a year and a half, uh, the, their home had been, had been burned down, so it's some ruins right now. But you can tell, again, this is a continuation. Uh, nobody starts a new book by saying, now. Now is something in relation to the past. It means so then, which means something had to have come before it. So we see the unity of the book here. The author continues the narrative right where First Samuel left off. And so it says that when they returned back to the ruins of their homes with their recovered families, with their recovered possessions from the victory over the Amalekites, it's just two days 
that they've been in these ruins when somebody comes into the camp who's not part of their team. You know, during those two days, David has no clue how the battle went. He has no inside information into his situation with Saul that it's, it's about to change. He doesn't have any intel that his homeland is now safe for him to return to, but David has already recommitted himself to trusting the Lord whatever happens, right? He's not going to do it his own way anymore. And it's into that moment where he doesn't maybe know what the next step is, but he's going to follow the Lord, that news arrives which changes everything. For it says in verse 2, it came even, even just two days after this. Well, they're probably trying to pick up the pieces and figure out where to go from here. It, it came even to pass on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul. A camp refers to army. This guy claimed to work for Saul, and he had his clothes torn, and dirt was on his head. That were, were, was a sign of deep grieving back then. If we're grieving, we don't tend to tear our clothes. Um, we figured that would only grieve us more because then we have to spend more money on clothes. It's just how we are. So we do other things, right? You know? Um, and, and so we grieve in different ways. But that's how they grieved back then. They would tear their clothes, um, and they would put dirt on their heads. Um, you, just, you would, everyone would know you were grieving over something. So clearly when this guy comes in and his clothes are ripped and he's got dirt on his head, it's bad news. It's not good news that this guy's coming with. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and he did obeisance. He bowed down to David. A bit of an odd encounter. I mean, you've already got your own difficult things you're trying to work through. Where are we going to sleep? You know, where are we going to live? So why did this man come to David? It's all the way south. It's pretty much as far south as you can go in Israel. The battle was up in the Jezreel Valley. Why did he come to David after the Philistines had routed them? We'll find out eventually why he came to David, but David wants to know where he's from first. Verse 3, David said unto him, from whence did camest thou? Where did you come from? And he said unto him, out of the camp of Israel am I escaped. And so David said unto him, how went the matter? I pray you tell me. And he answered that the people are fled from the battle and many of the people are also fallen and dead. He pauses and then he says, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead too. Saul and his heir are dead. Now, David, when he finds out this guy's from the battle, he says, I pray you, which means please, give me news. What's going on? What happened? David, you know, we saw him grow hard to his own people because of their betrayals. But clearly that's gone now. He, he has turned a quarter on his, bitter, on his bitterness and he has become a leader again. He wants to know how, how they are. What's going on? How'd the battle go? Remember, just a week ago, he was ready to fight his own people, marching with the Philistines. So David's heart is definitely changed to the where it should be again. And you know, that is one aspect of a heart that's after God. The Lord loves and he serves us even though we betray him. In John 13, verses 1 through 5, it's one of the most interesting sections of Scripture where Jesus washes their feet. And it says... In verse 1, now, John 13, verse 1, now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Uh, better translation would be, he loved them through it all. 
through it all. What, what all did Jesus have to love them through? We'll keep reading. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. He's part of the through it all. Judas. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from supper and laid aside his garments and he took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. He washes Judas's feet, the man who's going to betray him that very evening. You say, how do you know Judas was there? Verse 10, John 13, Jesus said to him, he that is washed needs not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and you are clean, but not all. Judas is there. He loved him through it all, even the betrayal. Washed his feet. I cannot have a heart after God if I'm going to hold grudges. Can't. You can't. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm just saying you, you will not have a heart after the Lord. You won't have a heart that dives into the Lord's heart and then allows God's heart to impact your heart in such a way that you know what the Lord wants. You won't. You won't have a heart after God if you're going to hold on to grudges. Your heart, my heart, needs to be tender towards our brothers and sisters, even the ones that let us down, even the ones that betray us. Well, this news is awful. It says they have fallen down in battle, many of the people, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead. Now, he doesn't list the other sons because Jonathan would have been the heir, the oldest. But when David hears this news, he doesn't believe it at first. Verse 5, and David said unto the young man that told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, be dead? And the young man that told him said, well, as I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and blow the chariots, and the horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called unto me, and I answered, here am I. And he said unto me, who are you? And I answered, I'm an Amalekite. And he said unto me again, stand, or literally stand over me, I pray you upon me, and slay me, for anguish has come upon me, because my life is yet whole in me. So I stood upon him and slew him, because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. So this guy claims that he just happened by chance to be at, get Mount Gilboa, run into Saul. He happened by chance to just be in the thickest part of the battle where Saul is kind of being run down by the Philistine archers that we learned about, and that Saul, as he's being chased by, he actually mentions the chariots, which we had no mention of that in 1 Samuel. Chariots and the horsemen were chasing him. That he found Saul in in a bad state. Uh, It could be that he was wounded. It could just be that he knew he he, he was a dead man. And so he said, please stand over me and kill me because I, I can't get away, you know. So the, the question, of course, is, is, is this guy telling the truth? 
And because his account contradicts what we learned in 1 Samuel 31, verse 5, which tells us very clearly, and when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he didn't say dying, he says when he saw that Saul was dead, he committed suicide as well. So it is possible that Saul's suicide attempt failed. He was still alive, and he was somehow trying to get away and then the Philistines discovered him and that this guy then finished the job. I always taught it that way in the past. However, I've discovered some issues with that view as I studied this time through. As I said earlier, it doesn't say that Saul's armor bearer thought Saul was dead. He said Saul, it said he saw Saul was dead. And then later on in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, David references his conversation with this young man and explains that this young man had disingenuous motives. David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Beriathite, and said unto them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of all adversity, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziglag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for his news." So as this guy is sharing this with David, he's not in mourning. He's kind of excited. He's thinking he's got good news for David. He's saying, David, you don't have to be on the run anymore. I killed the guy that, that, that wants you dead. You know? Can I get a sticker? You know? You know? Student of the day, something? Lollipop? Reward. David said he was after a reward. So I wouldn't argue with anybody over it because either thing is possible. It's possible Saul's suicide attempt failed. That would be the, that'd be the crowning jewel of Saul's reign. But I do believe now this guy was lying. We know that the Amalekites were scavengers, and so it is more likely that this guy swooped in to plunder the dead while the Philistines were still chasing the fleeing Israelis. However it went down, this guy makes it clear why he's come to David in his closing words. Look at the end of verse 10 here in 2 Samuel 1. And I took the crown that was upon his head, Saul's head, and the bracelet that was on his arm, and have brought them hither unto my Lord. Saul was my old boss, but you're my boss now, David. And here's the crown and his armband. It must have been some type of an important armband that Saul wore. This young man sought to turn someone else's calamity into his prosperity. And rejoicing at the expense of those who weep is never the heart of the Lord. In Romans chapter 12, verse 15, it tells us to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice, right? We're not to rejoice because someone else is weeping. Never. So, whether this guy's story is true or not, his whole attitude here is incorrect. Now, if this guy's story is true, even if it isn't true, it is ironic that the man who takes Saul's crown shouldn't even exist, right? God commanded Saul to wipe out every last Amalekite, but he disobeyed. So this is a sad picture of what happens when we don't deal severely with our flesh, 
We have already talked about multiple times in our study that the Amalekites are like a picture of our flesh. It plunders us in our most vulnerable moments. It kicks us when we're down. And that's why Jesus tells us to be merciful towards others' shortcomings, (laughs) but very serious in how we handle our own. Isn't it funny we do the exact opposite? Like we're ready to pounce when someone else blows it, but as I mentioned earlier this morning, when we do, we've got reasons, right? We've got explanations, justifications, understandings. You know, we've got all sorts of reasons why, well, it's not as bad as it seems. Where with someone else, you know, we're ready to go right to it. And that's the exact opposite of how Jesus tells us to be. In Matthew chapter 5, 29 and 30, Jesus utters that famous phrase, if your eye causes you to sin, bring it close and it's okay. It's okay. Is that what he says? No, it's violent. Pluck it out. Jesus, come on, man. I pluck my own eyeball out? Yeah, it's better to go into heaven with one eye than to go into hell without, you know, with both eyes. If your right hand causes you to sin, do what? Chop it off, Jesus. <laughs> I'd have nothing left if I did that. You know, I wouldn't have feet, I wouldn't have a nose, I wouldn't have eyes, I wouldn't have ears, I certainly wouldn't have a mouth. Clearly, the point that Jesus is making is that be serious with your own sin. But with other people's, be a lot more gracious. We cannot give our flesh an inch because it's not going to play fair. It's not going to cut any deals with us that it keeps. It will always bail. It will always lead us to a place that is not for our good. So it's not worthy of babying. Now, this young man, this Amalekite, he seems to have two hopes here. The best result, of course, is that, well, David is super happy now because his enemy Saul is dead, his heir is dead, and and, and I'm the hero who dealt the final blow, you know? I get to be one of David's mighty men now. The lesser hope is that, well, David will see that he showed mercy to Saul, you know? He, He put him out of his misery, and so he gets some reward still for at least being merciful and then bringing the crown to David. But David's reaction fits neither of those hopes. Look at verse 11 in 2 Samuel 1. Then David took hold on his clothes and he rent them. This word is really strong. It means he was harsh with his clothes, severe. And this was not just a, like, this was not just an act. Well, this is what I have to do because the king's dead. He's my father-in-law and I've got to show I'm mourning, you know. I mean, you know, rip a sleeve, you know. He gets violent with his clothing here. He, He rips his clothing. And then notice it says, likewise, all the men that were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they were fallen by the sword. They 
weren't fasting and praying. They didn't eat because they were too sad to eat. You ever been there? They were depressed. This is awful news. They were heartbroken. And while we can understand every line there, there's one that's difficult. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul. Certainly their tears are not just for Saul. But the fact that the man who did them so much wrong is mourned for, meals are skipped over, speaks a lot of these men. Were they angry? Had they been angry with Saul? Yes. Had they been betrayed by Saul? Yes. But these were not disloyal citizens. If something could have been worked out with Saul, if, if, if Saul had let them, they would have followed him to the ends of the earth. These were loyal men, loyal citizens. But now, any hope of a happy ending to this mess, any dreams of, of that hope coming true is now dead. Their, their king is gone. The army of their people is slaughtered. Their nation is, in all essence, gone. You say, wait, no, their nation's not gone. There's tons of people alive still in Israel. Yeah, I understand that. But we don't understand kingship in our country. In fact, it's a mark of our nation's DNA that we've rejected kingship. Whether that's good or bad, I'll, I'll leave others to decide and debate. But I will tell you this. When you don't understand kingship, it is very difficult to understand the Bible. Because we are unique in our cultural experience there. In our culture, we tend to see being a subject as a negative thing. It's why when I do weddings and we do the part where it says that the wife is going to, she's going to make her vows, she's going to submit to her husband, you hear a hush over the crowd. He, is this 1905, you know? I always hear it, did he just say submit? We see being a subject as a negative thing. Just the very idea of being a subject. No, I'm not. I'm free. But the Bible views being a subject as a glorious privilege. And thus it views that when there's no king, you're a subject of no one. Now, our culture views being a subject of no one as freedom. But the cultures of the Bible view that as meaning you don't belong anywhere and to anything. You see, David and his men are now left in no man's land. They know they can't go back to King Achish. There's no, there's no going back to that. They're not Philistines. The last year and a half was a wasted year. But now they have no ties that bind them to their homeland, to anyone or anything. And they know that's how the rest of their people are feeling too. Where do we go from here? Who are we? What's the plan? And so they mourn. Some of the men they mourned were ungodly men. Many of the men they mourned were good men. But they mourn for all of them because there's not a single Israeli that wins upon hearing this news. 
which is why David now confronts this young man. Verse 13, David said unto the young man that told him, where are you from? Because he knows he's He's an Amalekite. He, he's kind of suspicious about why an Amalekite would be in Israel's army. I mean, I'm trying to think of, of something appropriate, you know, that without offending too many people. But maybe the closest equivalent, you know, you might get is, you know, one of Osama bin Laden's sons being, you know, in our army, you know. It, what are you doing here, you know? You, you don't belong here. You're an enemy. You're someone who thinks that we're the great Satan. Why, why are you in our army? That's what an Amalekite's like doing in the Israeli army. Where are you from? I don't buy your story. And he answered, I'm the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite. <laughs> Israel was supposed to treat foreigners well. But this young man isn't exactly aware that David isn't feeling very friendly towards Amalekites right now. And he should have followed, if indeed his story holds true, that this is how it went down with Saul. He should have followed the armor bearer's example who refused to kill Saul when he was commanded to instead of killing the Lord's anointed. And so in verse 14, David said unto him, how was it that you were not afraid to stretch forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. That's exactly what the armor bearer felt. First Samuel 31, 4, then said Saul unto his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and torture me. But his armor bearer would not because he was so afraid. No. I'll do anything you tell me to, but not that. Because he feared what the Lord says above what his king said. Why were you not afraid? You, you claim Saul gave you a command, but you should have honored the Lord's command above that. You should have honored, honored the Lord's calling on Saul's life above his command. Apparently the guy has no excuse or answer, and so David called one of the young men and said unto him, go near and fall upon him. And he smote the man, the messengers, Amalekite, that he died. And David said unto him, he doesn't feel guilty at all about this. He says, your blood be upon your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. We are innocent of your blood, of your death, because this is your fault. You confess to your guilt of murdering God's king. And for that, you cannot live. Verse 17, David now composes a song to honor Saul and Jonathan David lamented, over, lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. Also, he bade them teach the children of Judah. The King James says the use of the bow, but it, it literally means the song of the bow. So that's the name of this song. He bade them teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. So when it says here that David lamented, it means he sang a dirge. He composed an elegy. Uh, with this lamentation, the song of mourning over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And this song, when David became king, he commanded the children of Judah, so we know this is early in his kingship. We'll get to that later. David did not become king of all Israel for quite a while. There's actually a civil war that's going to be fought in Israel with 
uh, Saul's one remaining son who's alive. <clears throat> but David will only be the king of Judah for, I think, the first six or seven years of his reign. And then he'll be the king of all Israel for the last 30-something years of his reign. But David, when he composed this song, he made them teach the children of Judah this song, and it was recorded in something called the Book of Jasher. Now, the Book of Jasher is a book of songs and poetry that's referenced a couple times in the Old Testament. Uh, it's, these songs or these poems, they are about important points in Israel's history, important battles, important events. Uh, sometimes people see that and they go, well, we're missing a book of the Bible. This is not a missing book of the Bible. People wrote other things back then that weren't inspired by God, just like people write things today that aren't inspired by God, okay? That the Bible references those works is simply acknowledging their existence, not that they were part of Scripture. It's referencing something so as you read your Bible, go, oh, I know, I know, okay, and in the book of Jasher, we've had someone read that to us, and you know, okay, now I know, this, it's an important song. It made it into this history book or this book of you know, poems from our history, of songs from our history. Verse 18 seems to indicate that David probably composed this song later on, not probably right this moment, uh, so that he could instruct everyone in Judah to honor Saul and Jonathan through singing it. But whenever David wrote it, it is a beautiful song. I, I mean, I would love for this to be sung, you know, something like this to be sung at, at my memorial service if the Lord tarries, especially by somebody who didn't like me or someone that thought, I, you know, I, I treated him horrible because it's a song that gives dignity to both Saul and Jonathan in death. Now, did David owe Saul that? No, he didn't owe Saul that, but David didn't do it because Saul deserved it. He did it because he had loved Saul. Because there were good things to remember despite the awful things that happened. Listen, if a betrayal hurts, it's because you care. <laughs> if you didn't care, it probably wouldn't hurt so much. Maybe you might get mad, you know. But it only hurts when you care. And so David had cared. He loved Saul. And there were good things to remember, even though there was lots of awful things that happened. So David begins with this dirge, this elegy by lamenting the loss of Saul and Jonathan. He says in verse 19, the beauty of Israel is slain upon your high places. How are the mighty fallen? Do not tell it in Gath. Do not publish it in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul as though he had not been anointed with oil." David laments the loss of Saul and Jonathan because Israel's most beautiful part of their nation is now gone. The word beauty there in verse 19, it refers to an ornament. Saul's family, Saul and Jonathan in particular, were like the, the bow, you know, or the star on top of the Christmas tree, you know. 
I mean, the rest of the tree was beautiful, the rest of the decorations were beautiful, but these were that crowning gem. Now it's gone. Now they're gone. They were slain upon your high places. It means the, the hilly places. Mount Gilboa is a, a, a big hill. How are the mighty fallen? The powerful? How they have fallen down? You don't get more powerful than Saul in Israel. If he has been defeated, then how will the rest of the nation be victorious is the idea. This is bad. This is worthy of mourning. You know, you think to yourself, if you, if you look at the facts, you think, David, this might actually be better for the nation. <laughs> you know, like, like, like Saul's he's not a good king. But that's not how David sees it. In Jeremiah 15, 19, there's an interesting section of Scripture that has always amazed me. Jeremiah, and if you know Jeremiah's story, he loves his people. He's preaching truth to him, you know, time and time again, and they just hate him. I mean, they just hate him. They lock him up in a dungeon. They put him up in this cage, and they put him, you know, hanging from the, the side of the wall, you know, of the city. I mean, they just do all these awful things to him. And Jeremiah just loves him. He keeps preaching. He's crying out to God for him. And finally, he's had enough. I don't remember it is what happens, but he goes, that's it. I'm done. I can't. I can't. These people hate me. I'm done. I'm not telling them anything anymore. Lord, get them. Not praying for them anymore. Lord, just get them. And the Lord says to Jeremiah, I know you've been through a lot, Jeremiah. Let me share something with you. If you want to be like me, then you need to learn to extract, to take out the precious from the vile. And then you'll be like me. I think of a, a similar story when Jonah, you know, he goes in, he doesn't want to go preach to Nineveh, but finally he goes and preaches, and it's like the, the most like passionate, heartfelt, you know, compassionate, you know, see the lost get saved preaching message. He comes in and he goes, 40 days and judgment's coming. I'm out of here. And then he goes up on a hill to watch the fireworks. He goes up on a hill to wait for God to destroy the city. And of course, God causes, he's hot, and so God causes this plant to grow up and, and to give Jonah shade, and he saw, oh, Lord, you're so good, you're so compassionate, you know, give me shade, and then the Lord causes this worm to come up and eat the thing, it, and, and Jonah's like, Lord, what are you doing, you know, and, and then the Lord just says, don't you get it, Jonah? You got more compassion for this vine than you do for an entire city full of millions of people, and then I don't remember the exact number, but he goes, there's this many people, and it's a big number. There's this many kids in there who don't even know the difference between their right and their left hand, and you want me to just wipe them out? David's heart was like the Lord's here because he saw the valuable and the beautiful things in Saul, even though there was a lot of vile things. He says, Israel's most beautiful part is gone. He laments because Israel's enemies will be emboldened. So he says, don't tell it in Gath. Don't publish this news, you know, in, in the streets of Ashkelon. These are royal cities in Philistia. 
lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised uh, triumph. The word there, triumph, means to exult. Lest they say, nothing can stop us now. Let's just attack all Israel. David is concerned for his people's safety because although Saul had been his enemy, Saul had also been a great protector of the nation from the Philistines on many occasions. And then David calls a curse on Mount Gilboa for not helping Saul. The song is very poetic. Um, He says, let there be no dew on you mountains of Gilboa, neither let there be rain upon you nor fields of offerings. Why? Well, you didn't help Saul very poetic language. You know, David curses the hills of Gilboa because they didn't give Saul special treatment. He treated his shield like it was just anybody's shield. He treated him like he was just, he hadn't been anointed by the Lord with oil, that he's just another soldier. Again, poetic language. The hills didn't make a bad decision to not help Saul. But David is using this poetic language to show how special Saul and Jonathan were, how important they were to the nation Verse 22, David now extols Saul and Jonathan's good leadership. He says, from the blood of the slain and from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, they didn't send other men to fight the hardest battles. They were on the front lines defending their nation against the most powerful soldiers of the enemy. They were mighty warriors and Verses 23 and 24, they also brought prosperity and happiness to Israel. Saul and Jonathan were lovely, or they were those who were loved. They were pleasant. They were pleasing in their lives to the nation. And in their death, they were not divided. Most people loved Saul as their king. They loved following Jonathan. And while Saul did try to kill Jonathan for his support of David, we know that those two reconciled. They supported one another literally to the very end. And up to this point, they'd been an unstoppable team. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. And so, verse 24, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. Now that they're dead, David calls all Israel to weep The time of the judges was not a prosperous time. Israel was fractured and frequently invaded by their enemies that surrounded them on every side. But Saul had brought economic prosperity due to national unity and the stability that that brings to a people. And so no matter how hard Saul had made life for David, he had made life better for so many others. Saul's death wasn't a cause for any Israelis to rejoice, even though it did mean an end to David's personal situation. And you know, those who have God's heart, they see the bigger picture. Life is more than just about me, isn't it? It is. My problems are not everyone else's problems. There are bigger problems that should concern me than my own personal comfort. And then finally in this elegy, David in particular is heavy-hearted about Jonathan's death because Jonathan was truly the best friend David had ever had. He said, how are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? Oh, Jonathan, you were slain in the high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been unto me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? 
I'm distressed, he says. The word means my heart's pinched. David experienced deep emotional pain at the loss of Jonathan. He could understand God judging Saul, but this didn't seem to fit with Jonathan. And this wasn't the way he pictured their friendship ending at all. He said, very pleasant have you been unto me. Very dear, very loved is what that means. So much so, he says, your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. The word love there refers to strong affection for someone based on a relationship that's already been established. In other words, something happened with us. There, there was a, a way that, that we came together, you know, that we had this strong bond. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful there means extraordinary, surprising. Most friendships form by mutual interest, even most marriages form by mutual interest. I mean, very rarely is it the whole Pepe Le Pew, you know, where he's chasing the, anybody here remember Pepe Le Pew? Yeah, he was like a stalker, right, you know? And we let our kids watch this stuff, at least my parents did. And so, you know, it, very rarely is it where, you know, the guys are pursuing the girl, the girl's pursuing the guy, and they want nothing to do with it, and all of a sudden it does happen. I'm not saying it doesn't ever happen that way, but usually relationships, friendships, they, they form by mutual interest. David's commitment to David was extraordinary because Jonathan was the initiator of their friendship in every way. I mean, he just came to David one day, and he took off all of his armor and gave it to David. David, has, he's nothing. He's a, he's a shepherd. And Jonathan just keeps heaping his honor upon him and says he just loved him. He just, he initiated in every way. David wasn't looking for a friend. David wasn't like, you know, hey, I'd love to get in with Jonathan, you know. Jonathan just took an interest in him and pursued him. And, and if you've ever ended up in a friendship like that, if you ever do, someone who seeks you out, who's committed to you no matter what, you have truly found something unique because that's not the norm. He says it passes even the love of women. It's more than. Now, what does David mean, passing the love of women? David could be referring to the commitment women have to each other. That's probably the best way to look at this here. He also could be referring to the marriage commitment. He says, you know, our, you know the love that you, you have had for me was greater than, I mean, David's got three wives at this point. You love me more than any of my wives. <laughs> he could be saying that. David would be a poor evaluator of either how women love each other or how marital love is supposed to work since, number one, he's not a woman. So how would he know what a woman's commitment to another woman is like as far as friendship goes? And how would he know how marriage is supposed to work since he didn't do it God's way? So again, I don't think these words are meant here uh, to give us instruction on how marriage or even friendship works. These words are meant to be poetic to speak of Jonathan's surpassing commitment to David in friendship. And please, please do not try to find a homosexual relationship between Jonathan and David in these words. Because he's saying, yeah, the love we had was greater than any I had for my wife. You know, you were, you were my boyfriend or whatever. First off, David doesn't call him his boyfriend here. He calls him his brother in verse 26. There is not a single romantic word used in any of these verses. And in addition to that, I highly doubt David is going to teach the entire nation a song that promotes homosexuality when it's a capital crime in Israel. I know we're out of time, but 
I do need to bring up that one of the reasons people come up with these bad interpretations or add these weird ideas to the Scripture is because we fail to understand true friendship in our culture. We fail to understand that I can be close to someone without having a physical attraction to them. That I can be close to someone without seeking to get more or to take something from them. And that is not friendship, and that is not love. We have another word for it. It's called lust. Jonathan's commitment to David gave Jonathan nothing. Jonathan, David added nothing to Jonathan. He was already the, as high as you could be in the kingdom except the king. In fact, David's, Jonathan's friendship with David caused Jonathan quite a bit of trouble. But Jonathan's commitment and love to David is the kind of love that the Lord has for us. And so it brings us full circle. John 15, 3, Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, and he lays down his life for his friends. And that's what Jonathan did for David, which is why David speaks so highly of his love and his commitment. A friendship, nothing to do with romance. A true friendship. And why does it bring us full circle? (laughs) Because in Acts chapter 13, verse 23, Paul, as he's talking about this man after God's own heart, he concludes that thought. He's going to move on to another one afterwards, but he concludes that thought with Jesus. Right after he talks about how God removed Saul in Acts 13, 22, and how he put David on the throne and described him as a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. He says in verse 23, of this man's seed, David's seed, has God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. The man who said in John 15, I no longer call you my servants, I call you my friends. And greater love has no man than this, than he lays down his life for his friends. Amen? Jesus is the ultimate man after God's own heart. And that's what he did for us. So, let's all stand. Lord, that's our desire. We do want to learn from David, but ultimately we want to learn from you because you are the perfect man after God's own heart. Lord, you dove into your father's heart more than anyone, and you allowed that to impact you in such a way that you always knew what the Father wanted and you always did the Father's will. You said that multiple times. So Lord, even though David, he got it too and he, he, he definitely sought to live that way and succeeded based on Scripture, even though he had many failures. Lord, we want to follow you, follow your footsteps to be men and women after God's own heart to be those who dive into your heart and allow you to influence our heart in such a way that we understand you, that we know what you want. So God, as we study this book of 2 Samuel, will you do that? Will you take hold of our hearts over the next however many months it takes us to get through this book? And would you make us men and women after your own heart? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.